We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Don Palumbo. Jonah Lanto. Here we are. We are here. We are back at University of Minnesota Crookston. Thank you so much for having us. A big thanks to Brooke and her team at UMC Golden Eagle Entertainment and uh, everybody working the, the mocktails and all of the students that are involved. We, we really, really appreciate it. And we really appreciate you in the audience being with us tonight. It's a big one. Yeah. So also, uh, we are incredibly grateful for everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast. We the comments, the feedback and support that we've received from our listeners is wonderful. And it does more than just, you know, it's more than just for our, our reading pleasure. It actually does amazing things for our podcast. It puts us in front of new audiences, all of that. So we do appreciate that. So if you wouldn't mind and uh, take the time to to do that. So Jonah, what are people saying about Midwest murder? And we love the compliments more than the insults, just for the record in those reviews, but we are willing and to read both, either, either, or which, I, whichever I can, way they come. Sometimes right? I can take the insults, yeah. you know, but, um, but yeah, I, you know, the good or bad, we appreciate them, right? Good, good, bad, or whichever. This one is from GS Mal, five stars, great promotion of domestic violence programs. I thank you for promoting the domestic violence programs. The domestic violence programs must be vital elements of every community. And I am thankful for all professionals and volunteers of DV programs. Please keep promoting so one day we can see an end to violence. I will always give you the highest rating for what you are doing to defeat domestic violence. Well, thank That's you. That's very high praise. That's, yeah, thank you very, very much. We we were actually able to partner with two breweries, one in Fargo, one in Minot, uh, North Dakota, about, um, or we, we paired with them to make beers. Uh, they were the Midwest Murder Beer. And we were able to donate a portion of those proceeds, you know, after costs and everything to, um, in Minot, we donated to the, domestic violence crisis center and in Fargo, the rape and abuse um, crisis center. So yeah. it's, it's huge for us to be able to give back. So we, we really appreciate that. We helped raise some, some critical funds for various essential functional organizations in our community and also brought awareness to those causes. And I think it's very important. This one here is from Steeler man, John three stars, good storytelling, but quite graphic. I initially loved this podcast's the the hosts have good dialogue and rapport and are good narrators of the stories they highlight. The cases highlighted are interesting, and I enjoy the summary of the current events and culture of the time frame of each episode as well. I'm aware they give a warning on content and state they don't shy away from the dark details, but I don't find the graphic nature of some of the episodes to add anything to the story, especially when discussing crimes against children. Well, we appreciate the the, the feedback. I, I have to disagree a, a little bit because I think if we're, if we are hiding some of those details and, and uh, we're not being completely truthful about it, then I, I don't think we're doing the, the case or victims justice, but I definitely appreciate the, the feedback. Yeah. I, I think this is great feedback and it's not going to be for everybody. And, right. and that's, yeah. that's, that's what makes it uncomfortable. And I think it's important yeah. to be uncomfortable every once in a while. Yeah, I think that's, that's where we get growth, right? This episode is brought to you by Midwest Memoirs. The stories of your family deserve to be heard. And Midwest Memoirs captures your living generation's stories, jokes, and even tall tales. Because the most important story you'll ever hear is the story of your family. We've done it with our families and think it's something every family deserves to have. Keeping in mind that every dynamic is different, we sit down with the voice you never want to forget. We interview our guest, who is your family member, or even you, for professionally recorded conversation so the story of your family is never forgotten long after they're gone. You can, uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, reach out. It's, a, it's, a, really cool, it's a, a really cool service that um, 
kind of a new venture for us and and it's uh, been a wonderful wonderful uh, experience for sure there are voices and stories in this life that you you don't ever want to stop being able to hear right. and and this really helps you capture that you and can even, also buy oh, us a hot dish yeah go for it at buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. It's a really cool way to financially support the show. It helps us get case documents and files, hotels, travel expenses, and all the things that help keep Midwest Murder going. We appreciate everyone who has done that so far. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. All right. I think we're here. We're there. We go to 1997 and 1999 in this episode. And oh, 1997, we've, we've definitely been here before in, in Midwest murder. And so and it, it does get hard sometimes to make sure you're not using the same, um, highlights and everything. But I think that's what, that's you what still got to paint the picture. That's what puts people in the map, right? So humans cloned a sheep named Dolly. That was interesting. Madeline Albright was sworn in as secretary of state. And the last time I mentioned her, she had just passed away and I like made it my life's mission to bring back, bring, bring back the brooch. That was a, that's a tongue Did it work? Bring <laughs> um, back the bring, brooch. Bring back the brooch. And I think it's happening because many of our, our sweet fans have, um, have given me, a, you know, a, a brooch here and a brooch there. So I, I love them and I, I love when I get to wear them. So thank you to those, um, those people who have, who've done that. She's like, hint, hint, you can make me a brooch. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. No, I'm, oh, okay. no, I'm calling out those fans who were, you yeah. know, who thought, you know, good call. Yeah. Nintendo 64 was released. Harry Potter's first book was actually released as well. And the people's princess, Princess Diana, was killed in a car crash. And Mother Teresa died in Calcutta. Uh, in sports news, Mike Tyson chewed on E. Vander Holyfield's ear. Bit it still right so clean weird. off. It's still so weird. Like, I remember yeah. watching that, and I was 13, probably. Uh, Tiger I, was, Woods, I was at a party with, like, 20 people. It was a situation. It was intense. Yeah. Tiger Woods won the Masters at 21, being the youngest person ever at that point. And it's coming up on Masters Week, and I can hardly wait. Oh, it's my favorite, my favorite time of year. Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl. Florida Marlins won the World Series. And the Detroit Red Wings beat the Philadelphia Flyers, sweeping that Stanley Cup series. So in 1999, Jonah's graduation year, so that's pretty much all that matters, right? Stop giving away all my secrets. <laughs> but we can just, we can just stop. Um, Napster was released. And so high school kids everywhere were terrified that um, we were going to be arrested for sharing songs. And I was copyright one. entirely willfully downloading music and oh. prepared to be arrested by naps by for at, at any time. I was then. I was terrified, but I know I was doing it. Uh, also, sadly, that was uh, the year of the Columbine High School massacre. SpongeBob premiered. Lance Armstrong won his first tour to France, and of course, we all know that he wouldn't keep that title because of drugging. And uh, in sports news, Denver Bron Broncos won Super Bowl thirty three. I'm pretty sure it was thirty three. I know in a couple episodes ago, I think I added 10 years because again, Roman numerals are hard. It's easy when you're looking at X's and V's I and I's and trying to equate it to and number. Then, I, I, yeah. Like hard. I need, I need a lot of time to, to figure it out. Uh, the stupid New York Yankees won the world series and, um, also the stupid Dallas stars who should still be in Minnesota, uh, beat the Buffalo Sabres in 99. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, for those of you who have never listened to an episode of Midwest murder before, I absolutely make the timeline about me. Um, it's just what I do. So it's, I hate the Yankees. And uh, yeah, I, before the show, I, I, I proclaimed my hatred for the Dallas Stars. All right. Today we go to Vincennes, Indiana, the oldest city in Indiana, which is, uh, so it's one of those towns with a deeply rooted history. Originally settled by the tribes we now refer to as the Sioux, Cherokee, and Iroquois, the French were the first European settlers to take over the land, then followed by the Redcoats, and then became a U.S. territory after the Revolutionary War. Being the oldest city in a state means you're a leader in first. First newspaper, first Catholic and Presbyterian churches, first Masonic Lodge, first bank, and... First bar. I mean, duh, right? If you're the first town, you're going to have a lot of firsts. Like, I, I just... It may be giggle. Nothing against the town in Indiana. I would... That's what I were famous for, too. I would probably say the same thing, but still... Um, it is also home to Indiana's first public institution of higher learning. Vincennes University was originally founded as Jefferson Academy with the help of former U.S. President William Henry Harrison, who lived in Vincennes while he was governor of the territory. And in a town of less than 20,000 people, and that's how it's been like the last 20 years, uh, a little over 4,000 of those are VU students. So that's pretty impressive for a two-year anniversary or two-year university. I mean... 
And I think I did, I think I did the math right. That would be like a quarter then, right? No, fifth. 20. Yeah, 20%. 20%. Yeah. Thank you. At any given time. It is Midwest murder, not Midwest math. And then, and then you throw a microphone in my face and I'm like, what? One plus one, I think is two. You know, it's just, you know, you no pressure, no pressure. It's whatsoever. a no pressure math test at any given time. If we are doing math here, there's no pressure to get That's it right. That's why we don't do math. That's why we don't do math. Yeah. Uh, VU or Vincennes University is incredibly proud to be the first, as it's mentioned, because it is anytime you, you search for it, it's mentioned. We were the, you know, the first, first educational institution here. So making up nearly a quarter of the town's residents, campus life has to be attractive. The Greek life or sororities and fraternities are a major part of that campus life, or at least they used to be. They call that the Greek life? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm new. I know that. Yeah. I experienced some Greek life in college. It's, it's a different, it's a different world. And he'll, he'll edit this out, but do you guys have, do you guys have sororities and, and fraternities here? Yes. No. Yes. Okay. Cool. Okay. I, I was going to keep explaining that. And then I realized I was like, well, no, cause we're going to get into it. So I wasn't that I sounded like a jerk there. No, it is cool. I think it can, I think, I think, I think the, the, the fraternities and sororities can be a great thing if they're handled properly and if they are, uh, not held to a higher standard, all that. So, but anyway, so that's, that's what I was about to explain. And I explained anyway, were you yeah. about to Don explain some shit to these people and then like second guess that? No, I wasn't. Okay. No, I, I think I was explaining my, my weird reaction. It okay. was because I had thoughts rolling around in my head and I shared them with you anyway. Okay. So when, uh, as most of you know, in this room, when you go to college, you are barely an adult. And while it's a much different perspective for a parent, you have this newfound freedom that is absolutely intoxicating and liberating. It's like high school, but you can, you know, because you can still point out the bookworms, the smart kids, the ones who are just there for an athletic scholarship, but it's also very different, right? You're, you're making adult decisions and you set your own priorities and you truly figure out if you're an extrovert or an introvert because you're constantly meeting new people. And if it's your scene, you're definitely going to house party after house party. I speak from experience. So Brooke Baker was one of those social butterflies. She was a headstrong, independent, ambitious people person whose family was from the area. Her parents and only sibling Braun and her grandpa lived nearby as well. And Brooke was enjoying college life. She didn't have a boyfriend, but she was enjoying the shit out of being casual with people. Like, so the dating scene was, was good to her. She was, she was doing what she was supposed to be doing. So she was well known and as a sophomore was the editor of the campus newspaper, The Trailblazer. Brooke knew what she wanted from life and she knew that she was going to use her journalism career uh, to pursue her dreams of, or not her career, her um, major, uh, to pursue, pursue her dreams of being a journalist. And it wasn't just an empty dream. She was really good at it, too. She began writing a piece for the Trailblazer about a rape that had occurred on campus. And she wanted to tell the victim's story and was working with that victim to actually tell it and be able to share it and help encourage her to do so. It seemed there were some that weren't happy about it and about her advocacy because she told her parents and had actually gone to campus police about verbal and emailed threats that she'd received. She's making noise mm-hmm. that people She's don't, people don't want. like it. Yeah. So on a Sunday late evening on September 7th, 1997, Braun Baker stopped at his sister's off-campus house. He knocked on the locked door, but not getting an answer, he used his key. He walked into his sister's somewhat cluttered living room and heard water running in the bathroom. So he waited for his sister to get out of the shower or bath before he said anything. But after a while, she still wasn't coming out, but the water was still running. So he's a little confused. So he went to the only bathroom, knocked on the door, but again, didn't get an answer from his big sister. He opened the door and realized that she wasn't even in there. So he turned the water off and started looking around the small house for her. He walked to his sister's bedroom to discover an absolutely horrifying scene. On the bed was his sister's naked, bloody, lifeless body. At 9.34, he made the frantic 911 call. When police and investigators arrived, it was a difficult scene to process, not only because the house was cluttered and somewhat messy, but the evidence left behind wasn't like anything some of the officers had seen in the past. There were no signs of forced entry, so that's an obvious indicator that Brooke knew her attacker. The head scratcher was the running water in the bathtub, and in the bathtub were a few waterlogged towels, so it was assumed the attacker cleaned up and then tossed the towels in the bathtub and ran the water to hopefully destroy any fluids or anything, any evidence that may have been left behind. In the kitchen sink, they found a, a sink full of soapy water. 
and on top of the water, just floating on top, were two empty soap bottles with a couple of knives submerged and at the bottom of the sink. One of the knives especially caught their attention. It was a large serrated knife that appeared to have been bent. By looking at the condition of Brooke's body, it was evident that she'd also been raped and in what also led them to think that too was investigators didn't find any clothing with holes. So of course that would also show that. She was stabbed 11 times in the back and a handful of times to her breasts. The autopsy found that 19-year-old Brooke Baker had likely died due to the loss of blood as well as both right and left lungs had been punctured during the stabbing and then subsequently collapsed. It was also discovered that she had likely been restrained due to bruising on her wrists and legs. She also had bruises on her pelvis and backsides of her elbow. Two non-matching semen samples were also found during this autopsy, in addition to DNA under her fingernails. Detective Greg Winkler of the Indiana State Police said the semen, quote, could have been left at different times and may or may not have been related to the killing. This and, is, and I'm this point is this. so... That feels like a not unintelligent thing to say, but very callous and very suggestive that he's already suggesting that, that thank you. Thank you for this, catching this that. is, this is, uh, well, we don't know how many sexual partners this person has had. So right. we yep. don't know what value this evidence has in, in this. Yeah, that was just the, and this, this Greg Winkler, um, I watched a lot of interviews with him and everything. I think it's very presumptive. It's he, just very presumptive. It's icky. Right. It's an it's icky. icky thing to say. It feels and how icky. Dare, how dare you? It's, why, it's, why would you even say that out loud? Even if you are thinking it, it's an icky, shitty thing to say. And it can, it can actually, I mean, I think the implication can be there too, that, that, well, she's had a lot of partners. So, I mean, it could anybody, could have been anybody. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe it was her fault or something. I mean, I know that that's a stretch, but that attitude kind of is that foundation for that. Thinking. I mean, that, that is a big early jump, but it is, mm -hmm. it is, I think one of the preceding mentalities and phrases. It is. That, yeah. That, no, it's I, like I said, it's, helps it's a, it's a justify stretch, but, that, that yes, but it's a, it's definitely the foundation for, you know, where that, where that thinking leads, you know, in, in, in my opinion. To me, this, this, the, the phrase here should be, we have strong potential evidence of, a perpetrator because right. of this, not, Oh, we don't know what we have because it could have been any number of different dudes. Right. Yep. Yep. And I, and like I, I was starting to say this Greg Winkler from the Indiana state police, I've watched a, a lot of during the re research, I've watched a lot of um, his interviews and he just doesn't seem, he just doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. So it, it really, it did bother me a, a maybe little he's bit, not, but yeah. it's just in, in, I fumble my words all the time and, uh, and maybe it was something like and this that. Poor, but this poor brother to, to come <laughs> and, and discover his sister like that in this whole situation. Yeah. I mean, this is. Yep. So former Knox County chief deputy prosecutor, Hal Johnston said, quote, she fought for her life. The last moments on this earth were horrific for her, but she put up a hell of a fight. While the crime scene was being processed, a crowd had started to gather around the house. And as detectives worked through the crowd in the following days, they were able to piece together Brooke's life. And most importantly, her last day. Her last day, she met up with friend and fellow journalism student, Biff Elliott. His name is actually Biff. I, okay. It, it made me giggle and everybody... Like well, back to the Future, uh, right? Right. And I mean, there's probably 10 of you in this room who know what Back to the Future is, but it's okay. <laughs> but Biff, I, it was a good name. Anyway, um, so she met up with Biff at about 7 p.m. for a concert on campus. And the two were very, very close. She confided in him, in him about nearly everything. And at about 9.30 p.m., they briefly went back to Brooke's house for Brooke to change clothes, and then he dropped her off at a house party not far from campus. That was the last time he saw her. At the party, she met up with Tommy Williams, where they stayed for a while longer before going to a different house party. And her and Tommy had a... They had a sexual relationship, and Tommy was maybe more into her than she was him. She didn't really, you know, quite, um, you know, feel the same feels, but... Um, they, they definitely had been spending time together, but they had a casual and consensual mm -hmm. relationship. Yep, absolutely. Sure. Yep. And at approximately 1am, they weaved their way through campus as they walked back to Brooks house, which was across the street from the university's journalism lab. And as they were walking through campus, they were spotted by a campus police officer. That police officer was also Brooks landlord. So the officer landlord, Mike Nardine was obviously not a stranger to Brooke, but his actions had not always been innocent. In fact, he made Brooke 
extremely uncomfortable. One of her friends said that she didn't seem to feel unsafe, but she felt uncomfortable. And when Brooke spoke with campus police about the threats that she'd received over one of her stories, the the rape story that she was um, working on, she also mentioned that she had concerns about her landlord, which was, you know, that the receiving officer, you know, receiving the complaint, his coworker. And it seemed Mike had a habit of entering Brooke's rental home without prior notification, Mm. which, okay, sometimes it happens, you know, you just, maybe there's, no. One day when Brooke got out of the shower and walked to the living room in just her towel, because it's her home, Nardine was sitting on her couch and claimed he was spraying for bugs, just sitting on her couch. Another time he was sitting on the edge of her bed. And if that's not creepy enough, he had also at one point asked her if she would be interested in exchanging sex for rent. How, how does this guy have a job still after any of these situations that yeah. is immediately report this guy? Come but, on. But the sad part is, is, you know, we're, but you can't, we're, he just shows up. Right. I mean, this was 1999. We're, I know. you know, a few years, a few years away from that. And that's just not, that's not how it was, was done. And she ended up not filing a complaint. Unfortunately, at least you, you gotta, you gotta file that. You mm-hmm. gotta file that, call someone, get your buddies to kick this guy's ass. I mean, something. Okay. Well, um, we're not going to, we're not going to. No, violence, no, sir. I know, but, but man. So Nardine became a likely suspect and was brought in for questioning. Duh. Um, in fact, a lot of Brooks family was convinced that he was the one who committed the heinous crimes. Detectives brought Nardine in uh, numerous times for interviews, not even just the one time. He had even completed a few polygraphs, but each of them came back as inconclusive. When detectives asked if Nardine would submit a sample of his DNA, he willingly but unhappily provided it. He was eventually cleared. So creepy, yeah, up and down, yep. but DNA cleared him of, of anything because right. we are right. at a strong DNA point here. Yep. Not and even yes, a question. Yep, yep. And he was, and he was working that night. So, I mean, he had an alibi, but just things weren't just quite measuring up just enough to make him suspicious, sure. you know? And then both Biff and Tommy were eventually cleared as well. You know, Tommy had seen, uh, that's the on again, off again, yeah, casual. Yep, yep. Okay. Tommy had seen, um, Brooke on her porch or on a porch of a party, um, you know, with another guy. And so he was, you know, he was sad and, and all that. And so they thought, well, for sure it might be him because, you know, of jealousy or whatever. And he was also, he was also cleared. So nearly two months after the murder, Brooke's dad, Maurice Baker said, quote, I know our police officers are probably working as hard as they can with their limited amount of resources and manpower. Our biggest fear is lack of community support and that people will forget what has happened. One of the possible leads detectives were investigating was the rape case Brooke had been pursuing. The rape had allegedly been committed by a Sigma Pi member and the executive director of Sigma Pi fraternity, Mark Briscoe said he was not aware of any members threatening Brooke, but he was aware of her rape story and the concerns surrounding it. Briscoe said, quote, the guys were upset about that because it wasn't true. The idea that a Sigma Pi member would kill to protect a fraternity brother from such a story was preposterous. Oh, well, we, I, I bet we can just take his word for it. Yeah. And sounds like super stand up. Absolute word is gospel human here. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I think he's he's one of those just the feeling and the vibe I get. I, I, I can just picture him. He's, you know probably wearing a polo shirt and dockers, you know, like it just, is the sweater. Like, yeah. Like, like the, you know, and it was 10 years past that, that, that uh, trend, but yeah, I just kind of stuck up entitled because to not have, cause that to me, that comes across as not having any empathy whatsoever, whatsoever. And, and then to, you know, to make it about the, to make it about the, um, well, there's no words, uh, the empathy, the lack of empathy here is key in what you're saying, Don, because there's no words of, of remorse. Right. It shouldn't be remorse, but he's like, well, none of our boys did it. I haven't heard it. So we're, we're not like, right. Right. It's a defensive position, not a care for a victim position is, is what Mm -hmm. is displayed in this quote and and in this reaction. Sadly, after, you know, after months and months of investigation and interviews, everything, the case started to go a little cold. Brooks' parents, Maurice and Janet, did nearly everything they could to make sure their daughter wasn't forgotten. Because, you know, again, that was their biggest fear. And well, this, this is, 
in so many of these situations, it's easy, quote unquote, for the community to, to move on. If the, 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 this well, is it's in not our, it's in our intro, that, right? right? You know, they get they get lost on the back pages of newspapers. The, you know, it's it's the family yeah. is is ailing; they're in mm-hmm. pain, and everyone else seems to be going about the rest of their lives. They have to. They will. This isn't their family member that they've lost. And and even though you know it was so painful to talk to the media because you know, it, it did bring up those, those awful memories and it made them feel like absolute garbage. Uh, they did what they had to do. Brooke's case was even, re- even received national attention when her parents went on inside edition, as well as the Maury, Maury Povich show, which of course was, you know, before they were doing paternity tests and you know, you're not the father stuff. So when it was actually, you know, a real, when, a real talk when show. Maury Povich was somewhat productive. Yeah. And in June of, of 1998, they attended a Flag Day parade within their community to hand out cards to attendees. This part just tore me apart. Um, the cards were a plea that they handed out to just attendees sitting on the curb. The cards were a plea for help to anyone who knew any details about Brooke's case, and if they did, for them to contact the, the police department. Mm. That same month, Maurice and Janet told the local newspaper that they were not displeased with the way investigators were handling the case, going as far as complimenting detectives Bob Hunnam and uh, with a, uh, Vincennes Police Department and Greg Winkler with the Indiana State Police. That, that is uh, such a painful notion, walking uh, like at your state parade to hand out mm-hmm. cards about your, your daughter just, who was Just begging for murdered. help. Yeah. yeah, because they're, I mean, they didn't have any answers. Well, that's, and that's the effort that it takes too. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So by December, by December of the, that year, 1998, it was a little over a year after Brooke's murder and her father, Maurice asked mayor Howard Hatcher, who was a former police major. So probably a deputy chief of some sort, um, to ask for the FBI's help in solving the crime. The mayor agreed because he submitted a written request for assistance In the request, he wrote, the investigation, quote, seems to be following the same path of the previous unsolved murder allegations in our community. The FBI, at the request of the U.S. Department of Justice, also began an investigation into allegations that Brooks' civil rights had been violated. No additional details were were ever released regarding that uh, Hmm. investigation. So because they hadn't received any answers and... Just wait. Okay. Yeah. 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 It it, it feels confusing to uh see a civil rights violation here. Right. But I will reserve until we we know more. So by June of 1999, so about six months later, they still didn't have any answers. As he had for the past nearly two years, Brooks' grandpa, Tom Jones, not the singer, opened up the monthly public forum to discuss Brooks' case. And at the meeting, Brooks' dad, Maurice, said, there's, quote, there's questions that have to be asked and answers that have to be given. The Brooks family said police weren't pursuing leads, quote, swiftly, thoroughly, or aggressively as they should have. Tom, Brooks' grandfather, said, quote, I think in my mind that they know who murdered Brooke Baker and they just aren't doing anything about it. Tom, the grandpa, questioned why Brooks' bloodstained mattress had been disposed of and accused them of mishandling the case multiple times. He felt so strongly that the case was mishandled, he actually uh, picketed outside of the police department with a sign and everything. And tensions began to run so high with Tom that after a while, detectives had to stop taking his phone calls. At that point, he was only allowed to talk to the chief. Tom, the grandpa. The grandpa, yep. You said monthly public forum. Mm -hmm. So this guy was holding monthly meetings about his granddaughter's rape? About his, about the case. About the, the case. The, the, the well, sure, about, about, the, the, about the case. The rape and murder. Awareness. But, but more spreading so, it, not yes. letting people forget. Right. Yep. yep. Wow. Police Chief Greg Zebart, while sympathetic, disagreed. He said, quote, we're looking for a needle in a haystack and we're tearing that haystack down one straw at a time. Chief Zebart and Chief Deputy Prosecutor Hal Johnston denied mishandling the case. Prosecutor Johnston had weekly meetings with everyone working on that case. And I mean, they had like almost a full wall of... Uh, file cabinets, you know, it's potential yeah. suspects, right? Every, I mean, everything. And, okay. and as far as unnecessarily destroying evidence, Zebart said the mattress was destroyed because they had taken all of the blood and forensic samples that they could. You don't need the mattress right. after you have right. acquired the samples. Right. I, I could see where 
Right. Yeah. yeah. And are we talking a twin size mattress or a king size mattress? I mean, that's a, not that I, not that the size should d- determine whether or not they keep it. That's not what I mean. But, I appreciate but. Tom's rage, though. I do. I like just want to get up in everybody's faces. And I, I don't know, it might make you hostile and finger pointing, but. This is a terrible event that occurred and likely by somebody that everybody knows and is hanging out with every day in this community. Well, we don't, right? and we, we don't get to decide or, or depict or, or tell people how they're supposed to grieve, you know, grieve. Right. I mean, that's not anybody else's place. You know, we, we all grieve differently. Um, and this grandfather, he, he was taking it to him. I think, I think it's full of anger, you know, yeah. for sure, for sure. It's an emotional yeah. response yeah. and I, I get it. And I I'm not it. judging him for his anger. That's no. not what I mean when I say that. Not at all. Not at all. One of the the biggest criticisms the family had of the police department was that Brooks' murder was the fifth unsolved homicide case in the city in the past 20 years. But according to the mayor, between the years 1992 and 1998, the Vincennes Police Department solved five of the six, six homicides, the sixth being Brooks. So they're not comparing apples to apples, you know, when, they, when they're looking at statistics. Janet Baker said, quote, this is not a war between us and the police department. The only war should be between us and the police department and the killer. Do you know, and forgive me if I'm jumping in early, they haven't gone to any private detectives yet. They're still, they're, they're still right. buying yep. into, okay. Yep. yep. By 1999, investigators had interviewed more than 400 people and collected over 70 DNA samples. So hopefully it was only a matter of time. The effort seems there. The, the effort seems, seems there, you know, but I mean, obviously if that's our loved one, you know, or your loved one, it's, you might, you might feel differently. On Monday, July 5th at 7.42 AM, the landlord from an apartment building contacted the Vincennes police department because of some possible suspicious activity in one of the apartments at his property. A neighbor to the, the person that owned it, um, her name was Erica, had been hearing running water since Sunday. And Sunday morning and early Monday morning, he knocked on the door of the running water apartment, but didn't receive an answer. He called out, tried the doorknob and it was unlocked. So he called out again, opened the door, not getting an answer, you know, hearing the, the running water, he went to the bathroom and turned the running water off on his way out. He noticed blood in the apartment, panicked, obviously he called the landlord who then contacted the police department. The landlord was scared. He was just being over cautious, but it did seem suspicious. So detectives from Vincennes Police Department and the Indiana State Police arrived with crime scene technicians. Immediately, it appeared there had been a struggle in the apartment. There were no signs of forced entry. So again, showing that... They were let in or knew the killer. Yeah. Yeah. Or the victim, yeah. But immediately it appeared there had been a struggle in the apartment. Um, Oh, I said that. Yep. Sorry. According to Bob Dunham with the police department, quote, the apartment was in such disarray with blood swipes on walls and stuff that I knew a violent crime had occurred. As they began to process the entire crime scene, they came across a somewhat familiar sight in the bathroom. In the tub were two couch cushions soaking wet from the recent running water. And detectives knew having evidence in the tub would have been too big of a coincidence. So two of the similar MOs, you know, running water, bathtubs, it's a bit of a too big, too big for a coincidence for sure. There was one thing missing from the apartment. It was obvious a violent crime had occurred, but there was no body, no victim. Erica Norman, 21 years old, was a broadcasting turned foreign languages major at Vincennes University. Growing up nearly three hours away with her parents and three siblings, she had adjusted well to college life and was a busy student who worked as a server in a local restaurant. And she was also enrolled in summer classes, plus was active in the Theta Chi sorority and also served as the vice president. So her roommate had not been there over the holiday weekend. And once his safety was confirmed, because obviously, you know, was it a second person, all that. And after he was questioned, he was then subsequently cleared. So where was Erica? She hadn't checked in with friends or family. And in 1999, cell phones were not the luxury that they had been in the earlier 90s. They were, you know, super popular at that they, point. They were, the, they they were, were there. present, mm-hmm. but rare, yeah. yeah. Not, like, not like today, you know, but also not like, you know, a car phone in 1994, right? So, I mean, <laughs> you know, definitely, definitely there. And uh, so it was very out of character for Erica to not be talking on her phone. 
The detectives then began the long process of putting together her final day. And they did so quickly because there was still a small chance she was still out there alive. On Saturday, July 3rd, Erica went to work at Market Street Restaurant and Pub around 5 p.m., clocking out around 10 p.m. and leaving shortly after. She continued her evening and met up with friends at C.W. Dandy's bar in the Holiday Inn. The party started winding down at around 3 a.m., and she invited the group of friends back to her apartment to watch movies. Brian, or as he was known, Beach Jones, a friend in the group, was the only one to accept the offer. So the last time she was seen in public, alive, she was seen leaving C.W. Dandy's with a white male in a red 1978 Nissan Sentra that had a temporary license in the rear window. Brian Beach Jones was a clean-cut Vincent student who had moved from northern Indiana, but somewhat of a loner, and when detectives finally caught up with him, he was incredibly cooperative and wanted to help them in whatever way he could. Do you remember a couple of episodes ago, it was actually a Candy Harms episode, um, do you remember when they called um, the neighbor kind of unremarkably normal? It was the one witness and said what scared her the most about the man who was the killer was how unremarkable he was. And that is Brian Jones. Oh, why? Why is that? Why does that make my skin crawl when you tell me that? Because that's during that episode. It's exactly and, who the people don't suspect. It's, right. it's the creepy guy. It's always the creepy guy or, or the, the proverbial weird uncle, right. right? It's, it's always some sort of identifiable stereotype. There's always some sort of thing that makes your skin crawl about a mm -hmm. person that is this marker for guilt or, or right. for suspicion. And so when you get an entirely unremarkable person, Mm -hmm. that is capable of truly heinous things. It is more yeah. terrifying than you can really understand in those moments. It's like you're more afraid of, of the shadow than the monster in front of you. Right, right. Well, in that episode, you actually asked me what, um, what my idea of the boogeyman was. And it's, it's that. Somebody who is just right in front of you. Just right in front of you and you have no idea. Like, that's terrifying. So... Um, so old Beige here yeah, was pretty cooperative. Very cooperative. And pretty unremarkable. Jones told detectives that after they left the bar, they went to back to um, Erica's apartment where she made pasta and started watching a movie, which is a nice move. That's one of my favorite 3 a.m. things, just eating a bowl of mac and cheese. It's, it's yeah. amazing. I mean, 3 a.m. pasta and a movie. I mean, it's probably ramen at, at this point. Let's be fair. Ramen right. and a movie at 3 a.m. Not weird. Yeah, they did say macaroni, but I didn't I, I didn't feel bold sure. to say macaroni and cheese. Right. You know, but I don't know. I I'm here for it. It's it hits me different at 38 than it did at 20, but sure. Uh it wasn't long before Erica fell asleep on the couch. So Jones, this is what he's telling the detectives, Jones covered her up with a blanket and woke her up at about 4 a.m. to let her know he was going home. He then asked her if it was all right for him to stay, and she told him no. He told her goodnight and left the apartment. Sensing there could be a potential connection between Brooke's case and Erica's case, detectives asked Jones if he knew Brooke Baker. He said he did. His roommate had a relationship with Brooke a few years ago. He, they asked him, had he ever been to Brooke's, Brooke's residence? Yes. Then detectives asked him if he'd ever had sex with Brooke. No, of course not. So when Jones was asked if he'd be willing to provide his DNA, he willingly complied, offered it up. They submitted for testing almost immediately to see if it was a match for uh, the DNA that was left behind on Brooke Baker. And remember, I mean, we're talking over 70 DNA samples, right? That's a lot. So detectives then asked if Jones would give them consent to search his home and his car. He had no problem. So what's this guy got to hide, right? I mean, sure. Even though they'd asked for consent, something made them still ask uh, require or request search warrants. So Which they were not taking any chances. They did not whatsoever. have to do that nope. because they were granted consent, yep. had such a vibe about this guy that said, okay, you've given us consent, but we're still going to get a warrant. Right. Okay. This is the first, this is the first time that I, I've knowing that usually doesn't that. happen. Yeah. Yeah. If they've given consent, whatever consent and, is and, consent and who, who really gives consent? I mean, really? Um, yeah, it well, was, it was definitely a, a kind of surprise. With nothing to hide Don Palumbo. Well, 
Right, but we've talked about this because now know. I'm suspicious of everybody. I, everybody, you know, it's like, at all and if, times. if somebody's going to ask me to search my car, I'm not so sure. I, I mean, that, that's just I a classic nothing, line. I have nothing to hide. If you got nothing but, to hide, you might as well give consent. Right, but also why do you have to search? Man. I know it's a it's a weird it's a weird slippery slope. So while they were searching Jones's home, they always asked, deny consent for the record. It's he's, always he's deny not consent. an attorney. Our lawyer, I'm not, but always, our lawyer tells us always. to say that. No. It's my lawyer told me to say that. <laughs> well, while, uh, while they were searching Jones's home, they again just asked if they could take the clothes that he wore on Saturday or that Saturday that he was with Erica. They wanted to, okay, they wanted to smart. test him, right? So again, dude willingly provided them. So they're standing there uh, together and inspecting the clothes in front of Jones. One of the detectives spotted a red in color drop on his shoes, just a small drop. And they played it totally cool. They didn't bring attention to it, nothing, because it might not even be blood, but it's suspicious. In the shower, they found what appeared to be blood on the shower door, and investigators then moved to the garage where the older model Nissan Sentra was at. In the trunk, near the top of the interior, they found a few drops of blood, or what appeared to be. So meanwhile, Allegedly Erica, blood. Allegedly blood, yeah. Which is also why I said red in color, because sure. it's, yeah. Um, there's a chance. So meanwhile, Erica was still missing. There was absolutely no sign of her. At this point, investigators were nearly confident she was no longer alive because of what was left behind in the apartment, the amount of blood, and the number of days that had passed. They were, it was now becoming a recovery mission. They asked area farmers to search their land, dumpsters, barns, outbuildings, ditches, ponds, and to pay close attention to places that may have tire tracks where they normally wouldn't be seen. So, cause we're still, this is a rural area. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. I mean, it's a town of 20,000 and it's a, you know, farming community and industrial and yeah. But you can find a field somewhere pretty easily. Eight minutes mm-hmm. out of town. Not even actually we'll get there <laughs> on July 11th. The lab called detectives and gave them news that they'd been waiting almost two years for. The DNA profile of unremarkable Brian Jones matched the DNA profile of the semen left behind at the murder of Brooke Baker. And so for two days while they prepared arrest warrants, Jones was put under constant surveillance because they they didn't want him going anywhere. And because Erica had not been found to this point, they didn't have a DNA profile for her to compare against, right? So all of this evidence you know, it, the blood in the apartment, is it hers? You know, they can't actually confirm. And so they began compiling her DNA profile by using her parents' profiles. So because we're made up of half of our parents, they can put them together and find what their profile would actually look like. Okay. So they could actually take the evidence, you know, the, the found at Jones' residence on his shoe and in his vehicle. So that's how they're going to start, because without a body, they don't, they don't really have a lot to go on. So on July 13th, two days later, after, uh, after the lab called, Brian Jones was arrested for the rape and murder of Brooke Baker. He was someone who did not have a criminal record. All he had was a traffic ticket. And he was, they caught up with him at court in a neighboring uh, county or neighboring town for that, for that traffic ticket. So and they arrested, arrested him at traffic at, court. court. Yep. And then at that point, he was also listed as the prime suspect in Erica's case. At the news of his arrest, Janet Baker said, quote, I hate this man. I want this man's life. I want him to have the death penalty. I want him, I want him put to death or life without parole. I don't ever want him on the street again. Brooks' grandpa, Tom Jones, and, and no relation to Brian Jones, of course. said that he hoped the right person had been arrested. So still having uh, no faith, no faith in, in the, the police department. Just days after the arrest on July 20th, 1999, across the Wabash River in Illinois, just miles down the road from campus. I should point out that, I mean, the, the, Vin, the Vincennes, the, that town borders the, the river and on the other side of the river is Illinois. Okay. Just to be, just to be clear. So just miles down the road from campus, a farmer found a partially decomposed body on his land in the first two rows of his cornfield. It was believed to be the remains of Erica Norman. Near the remains, a black wallet containing her student ID and driver's license were found. 
A short time later, it was confirmed by dental records that those remains were, in fact, Erica's. Erica's mother asked the funeral home if they could save a lock of Erica's hair for her. Because the condition of her body was so badly decomposed, there wasn't any hair for her to save. And there was really no way at that point either to find out the cause of death. Wow. So in December 1999, fast forward a few months, you know, five-ish, Brian Jones was formally charged and arrested for the murder of Erica Norman. The cause of the delay was awaiting the results of the forensic testing to, to come back. And that dude wasn't going anywhere. So that was, you know, the, the crime lab wasn't, it was urgent, but not urgent. Yeah, they've already got him on the one, right. on the one yep. murder for sure. Yep. So in August 2000, Jones pleaded guilty to Erica's murder. He addressed the court and gave details to the last hours of her life. He said after arriving at Erica's apartment, they got into a physical altercation. Erica threw something at him while he threw a lamp at her, which hit her in the head. The struggle continued and Erica began to bleed from her injuries. He then strangled her and placed her lifeless body in a plastic tote, put it in the trunk of his car, and then drove to the cornfield and dumped her body. And mind you, I think this guy still thinks that there's hope for him to get out someday, so you know that there are details he left out. Of course. He, what is it? Just a sick scumbag. During his admission, Elaine Norman, Erica's mother, held on to a stuffed bear that she'd had since she was a child. As he continued sharing the details, she left the courtroom. Jones's attorney claimed Jones had a jailhouse conversion. So here comes the uh, here comes the appearance of jailhouse Jesus. Oh that, uh, boy! Oh boy! And that's the best, the, by far the best version of Jesus. Let's be the, real. The jailhouse here. Jesus. I mean, he was going to convert you into many things, and so he had this conversion that made him admit his guilt. He was sentenced to sixty years in prison. So did, did he? Do you think he did the jailhouse Jesus to avoid death penalty? I think he did the jailhouse. Jesus, just to see if he could save his ass, uh, just in some way, in some way, whatever it might, it might do as part of the plea agreement. The prosecution was not allowed to seek the death penalty. If Jones was found guilty in Brooke Baker's case. Mm. Yep. So just a few months later in December, 2000 Jones went on trial for the rape and murder of Brooke. He claimed he had been to Brooke's house with friends three months prior to her death and he'd been in contact with her at least one time afterwards. It's also important to point out, he went to her funeral. Ugh. Yeah, that's like, that's another level. It's unsettling. Right? Like that's a different It's not level. uncommon for killers though. It, it's just, it, it's, it's another layer of this weird creepiness. He also the night of Brooks murder, he was at a party with um, fraternity brothers is what he said at a house, not far from Brooks home. They were at the party until 2 AM. Jones claimed to have been asleep for the rest of the night. That was his alibi. However, his roommate, the same one that he went to the funeral with, wasn't sure if Jones remained there because he was sleeping. The prosecution hammered home that Jones lied about ha having had sex with Brooke. He lied about it, plain lied about it. And that, and they really put a lot of weight on that because they asked him point blank, you know, do you know her? Yes. Have you been to her house? Yes. Have you had sex with her? No. And then, and then why, why is your, you know, your, why semen is it your, your semen yeah. says otherwise? Yeah, exactly. So plus again, it, just like we said, the biggest gotcha of all was his DNA matched semen taken from vaginal swabs, also taken from the sheet on her mattress, as well as under her fingernails. A witness testified during court that they had seen his face with a scratch on it. Her, his DNA was under her fingernails. After the defense rested, after laying a detailed case out uh, against Jones, Jones's defense attorneys went for the victim shaming strategy. Oh, here it frickin' comes. Mm -hmm. His attorney said, quote, the prosecution will never prove to you that Brian, Brian Jones raped and murdered Brooke Baker because he didn't do it. The only thing he did was have sex with her, and at one point he lied about it. So again, watching, watching, watching these interviews and, and, and watching, um, specifically the one, this attorney, he might be a nice man. I'm not sure, but just the vibe I got from him was, 
you're the, you're the reason why you're just, you're just the reason why horrible, horrible people get let off or get acquitted. They are, but man, this is so tough because we also know how at this point, how many innocent people right. have been implicated 100%, 100%. Like conversely. I'm Absolutely. thinking of this, uh, my, my own, my own son. What if this was my son? What if this was your kids? What mm-hmm. if this was your kid's girlfriend that this right. happened to? Right. Yep, I know. Like yeah, it, I know. It, it, it is but he scary just, either way. He just seemed slimy. This guy right? is like, definitely slimy. And, and it, and I think if you're going to, if, if you're going to character shame the victim, like, there's a, there's a nice cozy place in hell for you. Like there's like, what are you doing? Because again, that's, that's, that's putting out that narrative that she deserved it. Right. Right. There, 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 and that's a a regular narrative that has been, I think, constantly perpetuated and not addressed enough. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's slut shaming, right? It's, it's happening. Like who cares how many people she's having sex with? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. I hope she had a great time. As long as it's consensual and everybody's having fun. Of age, all that, like, right. But to say that, that that's, I I, I, I mean, I think that's, that's where we, I can, I can still see where somebody's, you know, you're this nervous young man who you like this girl, you had a one night stand. Now she's dead. And, and what do you do? You're freaked out. Like if you say, yes, I had sex with her and she's dead, you're screwed. And then if you say, no, I didn't have sex with her, you're, you know, you're screwed there. And don't get me wrong. I believe they've got the right guy here. And I hope, I, I hope my instincts are right. I I mean, science is right too. Right. And science is is right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, but let's not be you know, naive to all of the parameters, either how right. terrifying it yep. could be yep. either way. Cause we have addressed so many innocent people who mm-hmm. have been forced into these situations right here on this very podcast. Absolutely. And, and, and thank you for bringing that up. And because it is, it is true. I think it's, uh, you know, it's like when I think it's less of a problem than the other thing, sure. but it's, yeah. it's there. And so to raise reasonable doubt, because again, it's, you know, when you're, it's, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, right. To raise reasonable reasonable doubt, he said it was Mike Nardine, the campus police officer, or possibly two other friends of Brooks, also students at VU, Steve Hoffman and Tommy Williams. He said both were jealous. And the defense did a bang-up job of putting her sex life on trial. They brought in two evidence. There were three condoms in the garbage cans, but four wrappers. And so where's the fourth condom? They were split, uh, the condoms, the, the DNA evidence left behind, they were split up between Tommy Williams and another friend, Steve Gettler, who lived, he lived elsewhere. He was visiting for the month and they met. In five days of testimony, there were almost 30 witnesses called to the stand and nearly 200 pieces of evidence photos had been entered into evidence. I mean, so this is a massive, this is a, a massive amount of, of information. After eight hours of deliberation, he was found guilty sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This is where I really, really think his attorney's cool. His attorney said, quote, it's not enough that he will spend the rest of his life in a cage with a bunch of animals. The prosecution wants to take away all hope from him. He is one of the animals. Like he is one of those people that need to be taken out of, taken out of, of, of normal society. Out of circulation. Right. His mother testified during the sentencing hearing as well, saying that she had not known her son to be violent. She also stated that she thought it was, quote, a situation between two people that got out of hand. So I want to be clear. Did, was he just found guilty of the one situation or he was found guilty for rape and murder? Okay. He was found guilty. So it was rape in one case, murder in the other. Yep. Yep. And so his attorney kept bringing up, his, his attorney kept bringing up, uh, like he said in an interview, I told him that if he was not guilty, then don't, we're not pleading it out. And so that's why he went to trial, but he pled guilty for the, the other one for, for Erica's, but didn't plead guilty on, on that. So there were some people who were questioning that, like, well, why would, you know, why would he do that? Well, because he thought there was a chance he could get off, right? He was mm. attached, he, you know, he had, he was too wrapped up with, with Erica's, body was was this guy was brian jones part of 
part of the Sorry. fraternity? What? Did he have frater- fraternity affiliations? I know that my, the, the, my the, eye is watering. I'm not sure what's yeah. happening here. Sorry. Yeah. You, you, you're coughing your eyes out of your head. Do you guys, did you guys get, see when I coughed on him and he's like, Ugh. I know. <clears throat> okay. I'm almost back. Maybe. It happens. <clears throat> it does. I hope you do, Jonah, this one out. If I say stupid shit, you can leave it in. But when I'm, you know, choking on whatever. We usually try yeah. to edit the chokes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think, I think yeah. I, the, the choke editing, pretty high you. priority <clears throat> in post-production. Honestly, I'm more embarrassed by the choking being in the recording than I, than I would be the, the one episode when I tried to spell out one and I pronounced it or I spelled it yeah. out as O-1-E. Yeah. yeah. So I'm more embarrassed by the choking than I am that. I am as awkward as I seem. I am. It's who I am. <clears throat> anyway, um, what was your question? Brian Jones, was he in the frat or not? Like there he were, was there, not. So no, he was not, not this, in the not frat. This, not at okay. this point. No. Okay. So, and yeah, that was... The, the, the part that... The part that bothered me too, and, and again, when, when something like this happens, right, there are more than just the families of the victims. You know, the families of the the murderer or whomever the attacker the assailant are also involved right i mean so this his mom there's a lot of sadness there too yeah, you know? of course and back in like in my like corrections uh, training they used to say if um you know when a person goes to jail they lose their friends they lose or they lose their friends they lose their spouse they lose their siblings and the mom is always the last one to go and hardly ever goes Right. And so mm. there's a, there's a level of sadness there, but for her to say, I thought it was just a situation between two people that got out of hand. Like that's being dumped in a cornfield is not getting out of hand. That's not okay. No word from anyone within the victim friend groups of associations with this guy. Mm-mm. No. So that, so, that, so, so he was truly a loner. He was truly a loner. Yeah. Yeah, And and like her, her friends didn't even know she was ever trying to talk to this man or either of the victims did not have a lot of known affiliation with him. Right. So any, any inkling as to how long were these murders premeditated on his part? No idea. Okay. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Do you, is your instinct that these were spontaneous or is your instinct that this guy was planning them for a while? No, I think they were spontaneous. I think he, he saw targets at the right time and, and went for it. And I think. So he was walking through society as somebody highly capable of murder, but not necessarily planning it. Right. And then suddenly found himself in this intoxicated, lustful. I wouldn't say, oppor- I wouldn't say well, it was lustful. On his part, it was probably on, lustful because there's rape his, here. On his part, it was rape, but yeah. like, but you know, if, if yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to say. I, I think, I think they were, uh, I wouldn't say crimes of opportunities, but I think once once the victims got into his mind and, and those, I do not want to call them opportunities because they are not, it's never an opportunity for rape. That's not, so that's not what I'm, I'm saying, but he found himself in a situation that he, he could control or, you know, take advantage of someone in that way. And it would seem that the victims in this case invited him. Uh, he wasn't, right. he wasn't right. intruding on them. Nope. Nope. So he was invited. And so they, so one of the that's, theories, that's really scary right? that, that you feel so yep. comfortable that this guy could make himself so relatable and so friendly and so desirable that you right. would invite him into your sacred space, mm-hmm. into that, that territory. And then, right. That's the, what, that's, that is what is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And you can't control that. I mean, both of these girls fought for their lives. Didn't do anything wrong. They didn't no, do anything gosh, wrong. Gosh, not a thing. No, and they and they fought till the end. You know, uh, Erica. Erica was four foot eleven, like about a hundred pounds. Mm. You know, and it's just it's it's horrible. I, I mean, because that could be that could be anyone in this room. That could be. Uh, you know, a, a, a lot of us have a, a survivor story from rape, you know, uh, whether it was attempted or, or not from, you know, from those days, uh, you know, when we were in, in those times, 
and it's just so um, horribly sad that that women are, are taken advantage of, and and some men too. It happens to men too. Well, um, anyone that that your trust of another person right. could be taken advantage of as right. as as a, as a human willing yep. to engage in anything, whether it's a favor, sexually or otherwise. Well, right? and I that's mean, you know, and that's what that, that's I want to I want to pop over to something else because as I was uh, doing my research too, what kept popping into my head was that, you know, this is 99, right? So we're coming off of the, we're coming off the tales of Kristen Smart going missing. Kristen Smart was a, a, a student at Poly, uh, Cal Poly, I think, Polytech, one of the, somewhere over there. And, and the creepy guy, right? Everybody in, in listening to his story, you know, he was the creepy guy, right? It was, it was, everybody knew it. And, but still managed to, you know, rape and murder someone, right? And so it's, it's, and we're coming off the tails of this. And, and I kept going back to, we, we don't tend to, and, and I, I just kept seeing like the reoccurrence of how we don't value those young women's lives, right? It's easy to slut shame her because she's had some sexual partners. Okay. You know what? Why don't you have your, why don't you have your dirty little secrets, you know, pushed out there? I bet you wouldn't be, you know, that, that favorable either, you know, and, and we just seem to treat young women in college this way, coming off the, off of the nineties, just from, you know, my, my time frame and, and this research it's, you know, it's changed, but yet we're still dealing with, you know, pieces of shit like Brock Turner, right. Who, you know, I, I mean, I could go off on a tangent and it's, I, I probably, no, I, I, I probably I, shouldn't, but I, um, I, no, I really could too. And, and I, 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 but we, I, I we protect, you. we protect people. We protect we people that do this. And there is a system in are. place that, that protects shitty people way too often. Right. Frankly, right. like it just, there are far too many shitty people getting away with terrible things because we choose not to hear the voice of the you know, victim the, or, in, yeah. The, right. Yeah. Uh, one, two other observations quick that I wanted to, to point out. Well, and I don't know that that would have saved us here though. No, there no, were no, no, there were no creep flags going off about right. this guy in particular. Right. It was so. just, it was just in general, those, yeah. you know, those situations because it is, it's, you know, college women. Right. And so it was, and I, I was a little obsessed with the Kristen smart case. Sure. Um, you know, the creepy guy was, and his father were just on trial last year. So anyway, um, but two observations, if, he hadn't left the bathtub water running in Erica's house. There's a good dang chance they would have never caught him. The guy had a traffic violation. Right? And then he was escalating, too, because he then got rid of Erica's body, or tried to, but he would have gotten better. Yeah, he would. this guy was going to keep going. Mm-hmm. And Erica, unfortunately, had to die for them to catch Brooks killer. He was caught for both, thankfully, but I think, think about how many other women were saved because of that, you know? Yeah. Un- undoubtedly. I, yeah. there's no reason to think this guy was stopping. He, right. he went past the first one. Right. And, uh, one other thing to, uh, Baker's Brooke, Brooke Baker's mom died in 2004. So just four years after he was found guilty. Super sad. I, I always look that, look that stuff up when, when it's, um, when the parents might be, might be alive. So anything else for me? No, I, I, I shout out to the grandpa in this story for picketing the police. And I know the police were really working hard to do their job, but I, I do think that sometimes these situations get swept under the rug when it, it, it didn't happen to you. It didn't happen to your family. It, Everyone else in the community can forget about it. And this grandpa w- w- refused to let it happen and didn't want it to happen to anybody else. And yeah, I, and he I asked just questions and, and, and I can't, when I, something like this has happened, yeah. you are so helpless. You're right. so helpless. And I can just, I feel for everything he wanted to do with his efforts. And uh, I, I just, know, I, I feel like I can't have an un, opinion. I, small I can't have, unsung hero on his part to, to do that. I don't know that I can have an opinion on it. I just, because I'm, I'm not going to tell someone how they, they grieve. I think, you know, people would be like, well, don't be so angry. Well, that's not yours to say. 
I, I'm know, surprised it's, it's, this story doesn't end with the grandpa kicking this guy's ass in court. Like, because <laughs> yeah. he was that, yeah. you know, he seemed like that, that yeah. type of guy. And yeah. I'm frankly, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often in general in these situations where there aren't more mm-hmm. fathers and grandfathers right. getting violent against their daughter's mm-hmm. attackers, mm-hmm. not calling into question their manhood or anything. No, I'm no. just surprised in general as a parent, it doesn't happen more often. Yeah. Uh, Resources for today is uh, thepeoplehistory.com, On This Day, Top End Sports, and then vincens.org, americanindiancoc.org, vinued.edu. Um, One Deadly Mistake on Oxygen, the NBC affiliate WTWO2. That is, I could say that every day. That would be fun. WTWO2, that's, hire me. Just kidding. That would be weird. Uh, MyWabashValley.com and uh, the VU Trailblazer News and a good portion came from court documents, his appeal, um, which they're like, yeah, cool, nice try. And, um, and then also the Vincennes Sun commercial um, written primarily by Debbie Schmidt Connect, and then as well as Dateline the next day. I was all over the place on this one. I was, I was, I was digging hey, don't, deep. Don't be shy about <laughs> oh, I'm digging not. deep no, no, no. for your sources. No, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. But it was, it was, I was uh, borderline obsessive with this one. So, all right, check out our merch store. You can find the link on our social medias. Uh, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on whichever platform you find Midwest Murder on. A big thanks to everyone who has. It does great things for us and and helps us move along. Midwest Murder is hosted by Joan Alanto and Don Palumbo and produced by the Good Talk Network. This episode was written by myself. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. We really appreciate you. And thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. Thank you, Crookston. <laughs>